In this worship service, there is a particular prayer that we say each time that we gather. This prayer is called the Shema, and uh, we take the words of this prayer uh, from the lips of Jesus as he quoted a couple of scriptures when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? This word Shema means to listen, but I've actually heard a little bit of an expanded definition of this word. Uh, from a rabbi, his name is Nahum Ward-Lev, highly recommend his work, uh, look him up. But he says that this word Shema means to listen so intently that you cannot help but respond. To listen so well that you feel compelled to act. And so as we say these words, have that in mind. Listen to the words that cross your own lips, to the words that the people around you are declaring and listen to them well. Uh, will you all please stand as you're able and join me in this? You'll see me raise my pinky as we, as we pray. This is for me a reminder that there's enough power and grace in God's little finger to change my heart and my mind and this entire world. So let's pray together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. You may be seated. In just a couple minutes, we'll hear our scripture passage for this morning, but before we get there, I want to give you a couple of things to think about uh, as you listen to those words of scripture. Our text this morning comes from the writings of Paul. This passage is from his letter to a church that he had planted in the Macedonian city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony that was initially populated by veterans of the Roman legions after several battles and victories uh, with the Emperor Augustus. You can find the story of the birth of this church in Philippi in the 16th chapter of Acts. Luke describes this event by explaining that Paul and his companions kind of strangely find themselves in Macedonia. They tried to go one direction and it seems that the Spirit would stop them. They tried to go somewhere else and they weren't uh, allowed to go. And then all of a sudden, Paul has a dream. And in this dream, he has a vision of a Macedonian man that says, come and help us. We need you to come here. And so Paul and his companions find themselves in this place called Philippi. Now, it was usually Paul's practice that on the Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogues and preach the good news and engage the people in the synagogues. But it seems that the Jewish population in Philippi was not large enough to even sustain a synagogue. So on the Sabbath day, it says in Acts 16 that Paul goes outside of the city, that he goes to a river where he supposed there might be a place to pray. And in this place to pray, Paul finds several women. Paul meets a woman named Lydia. Lydia appears to be the head of her household, and it says that Lydia was a dealer of purple cloths and purple dyes. And this purple color was something that was rather expensive and rare in the ancient world. And so this tells us that Lydia was likely a well-off woman. Lydia listens to what Paul has to say, and she responds. She hears, and she responds by having her whole extended household baptized. And thus... The first church in what we call Europe today was born, and it was started by this woman. Now, the Roman affiliation in Philippi uh, played a large role in the dynamics of the city. 
Roman citizenship at that time was kind of a big deal as Roman citizens were afforded certain rights and privileges that other people weren't. In fact, I encourage you to read the rest of Acts 16 because I stopped the story a little bit short. Paul's own Roman citizenship plays a featured role in this story if you continue to read. The letter that we're going to read this morning is Paul's letter to this church community about 15 years after the events of the book of Acts. Paul's motivation in writing this letter is to call the church to something more than their Roman citizenship. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul tells the church to live as good citizens of the good news. And in chapter 3, Paul makes this statement, Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we expect our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians is also a little unique in Paul's letters just for the fact that it is so full of joy. A lot of Paul's letters to certain communities address certain issues happening within those communities, and he often comes off a little bit grumpy. But in this letter, there is no evidence of that grumpiness. There is no evidence of this kind of contention. But Paul does mention that there might be opposition from outside of the community. Paul's basic message to this church is that the best way to face this opposition is through a unity that can only be attained through humility. This community may thrive not by exercising their Roman privilege and not by asserting their rights and not by political or economic manipulation, but by lowering themselves individually and communally. According to the model of Christ, it is this imitation that will complete Paul's joy, he says in the letter, and will ultimately bring joy to this community. As you listen to the scripture this morning, here's what I want you to listen for. There's two basic sections to this passage. The first four verses contain Paul's instruction to the church, to this Philippian, Philippian community, and the basis by which he feels the authority to do so. And the second portion, in verses 5 through 11, describe the orientation and the movement of the Christ. So listen closely to this passage as I read to you from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus the Christ is Lord." 
to the glory of God the Father. This is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. While Paul wrote most of our Christian scriptures, as far as we are aware, Paul never wrote a gospel narrative. He tended to write more theologically and philosophically in his letters to his communities. Paul never wrote a story about the birth of Jesus. He never wrote a story about the passion, about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul, in this passage, in this hymn, gives us an idea of how he saw the incarnation, how he saw the death and the exaltation of Jesus. Paul describes the incarnation as a movement that most of you that have taken our Richard Rohr classes will find familiar. The incarnation is a path of descent. The Christ, Jesus, is the very form of God. And yet this fully divine person does not exploit this divinity. Dr. Morna Hooker is a British theologian that wrote an insightful commentary on Philippians. Dr. Hooker points out that the story of humanity's sin and the need for redemption that's found in the story of Adam may be something that Paul had in mind as he wrote this passage. Paul often pointed to the character of Adam when he's talking about Christ, and though he doesn't say so explicitly in this passage, it may be to Adam that Paul is drawing our attention. Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Because the crafty serpent told him that it would make him like God. To echo Paul's words here, we may say of Adam that Adam being in full form human did not consider his humanity as a gift and instead grasped at divinity. Adam was made in the very image and likeness of God and yet it wasn't enough. Adam, which is a word that means humanity, Humanity grasped at equality with the divine. There's two consequences to this that Dr. Hooker points out. First, the command and the responsibility for humanity to rule over, to subdue the land, appears to be rescinded. Adam, or humanity, is instead given over to toil, to sweat, and to blood. And he must fight the land for his food. Adam becomes a slave to a cursed ground. The second consequence that Dr. Hooker points out is that death has now entered the picture. Adam's inability to accept the blessing that he had been given leads to his inability to maintain life. According to Paul, Christ did not view his equality with the divine as something to be misused. This Christ does not grasp at the authority of the powerful, but instead empties himself, taking on the full form of humanity. And in this full form, this Christ takes on the same consequences that were given to humanity. Paul goes as far to say that Christ becomes a slave, just like the story of Adam. And that this Christ is so obedient to this calling that he gives himself over to death. Christ's obedience mirrors Adam's disobedience so much so that the consequence of both are the same. Death. Death. 
And not just death, but the humiliating embarrassment, mutilation, and public execution in a way that brings the most shame that the Roman Empire can imagine. Yet what we find in this hymn is that it's exactly this willingness to descend, this willingness to lower lower himself that God celebrates. Humanity is given the consequence of death for grasping at power, and Christ is resurrected after emptying himself in service to humanity. God exalts Christ and gives him the name above all other names, Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior, this is the name above all other names. This is the title that the Roman emperor had given themselves, that the emperors had given themselves throughout the Roman Empire. The emperor was known known as the Lord and Savior of his citizens. Can you imagine a better example of humanity's grasping at power than that of an empire and its head? Can you imagine being a citizen of that empire and claiming another Lord and Savior? To claim Christ as Lord and Savior as Paul does and encourages the Philippians to do calls Paul's readers back to a rethinking of their citizenship. And this draws us to Paul's instruction to the community that was given in the first four verses. Be of one mind and love. Do nothing from selfish ambition and a pursuit of empty glory, but be humble. Consider others as higher in honor and status than you. May each of you look to fulfill the needs of others rather than your own. Have the same mind that is in Christ, who emptied himself, who made himself a slave, and in so doing received the exaltation of God. Don't grasp for the power from the structure that you're used to. Live as good citizens, though, of the good news. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago that has continued to come to mind as I've been reading and thinking about this text this week. I was talking to a friend of mine about somebody that we know mutually, and you should know from the beginning that if I'm talking to a friend about somebody else, it's probably not a good story. This other person is somebody that we care for. This is somebody that we love, somebody uh, that um, we appreciate. But sometimes this other person does some things that upset us and confuse us. We don't quite understand some of the things that this person says or does. She talks a lot about the value of her friendships and her family. She echoes Paul often. She talks about how much she loves to to contribute to the well-being of these relationships. She talks about the time and the effort and the resources that she pours into these relationships. She empties herself. For for the rest of us. The thing is, though, that my friend and I have noticed that her actions do not always meet the words that come from her lips. Sometimes her contributions to her relationships are somewhat manipulative. Sometimes she doesn't put everything into these relationships that she claims to. Sometimes we wonder if she receives affirmation and validation instead of just giving. 
Just as my friend and I were close to finishing these glaring observations that we were making about our friend, I said these words. It's like she grasps the concept, but she doesn't get the practice. She grasps the concepts, but she doesn't get the practice. I imagine that we all have had a friend that's something like this at one point or another, but that the reason that this conversation comes to my mind is not because of her. The reason that this moment comes back to me is because the moment that those words left my lips, I realized that I should have been saying them about myself. It's like I get the concepts. But I don't get the practice. I'm definitely someone that grasps the concepts. And in fact, I'm paid often to get the concepts and to even teach some of them. I have the opportunity to meet with people regularly and encourage them to humbly lift up the people around them. I teach Bible studies in this church where I explain the value of a loving neighbor and welcoming refugees. I do premarital counseling where I explain to people the value of creating space for their spouse to thrive in, to supporting them to the point where they flourish. And on occasion, I even stand up here in front of you and deliver a message that I hope does honor to God and does honor to the text and does honor to you as my community of faith. But if you ask the people around me, if I always leave, live up to these concepts that I often teach, I think you'll hear that I often do not. Now, I'm not beating myself up. And even though Paul does get rather grumpy, he's not beating up on this community either. Paul starts this passage with a list of what the community of faith has received through their life together in Christ. Paul says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, if you have received these gifts, then hear these words. I've received encouragement. I've received the consolation of divine love in this community in which I've been placed. I've shared in the life-giving Spirit of God. I have received so much. I've been given so much. What I'm hoping that you hear from me today is an acknowledgement that while I often get the concepts, I often don't get the practice. But because of all that I have been given, I want to. My hope is that as we read this text as a community, that we too can also come to this same confession. We as a church don't always get the practice. But we have received so much. And so may we all with one mind, with one love, and with one accord say the same. We want to get the practice. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for the gifts that you've given. We thank you for this community, for the encouragement that we receive through it, through the consolation that we receive, the divine love, the sharing of life, and the sharing of spirit 
that we receive with these people that gather with us today. Because we have received so much, God, we want to respond. Because we have heard, we want to respond. And so we confess today, God, that we don't always get the concepts. That you, God, are self-emptying. That you pour yourself out for others. That you are humble. That you've lowered yourself and you lift us up. And so we hope, we pray that we might do the same. Help us to walk the path that you walk and be with us on that journey. It's in your name and the name of Jesus the Christ and through the Spirit that we pray this, this morning. Amen.